Welcome to Prestigious Minds, where we explore the life and times of some of history's most influential people, such as inventors, businessmen, and entrepreneurs. All of these individuals have had a lasting impact on the world that we live in today. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rob, and in this series, we discuss Andrew Carnegie. Also, we post once a week on Tuesdays. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PMindsPod. Now let's jump into this series, Andrew Carnegie. Hello, Rob. How's it going, Jeremiah? It's going pretty well. This is, we're here recording on the 1st of July, 2022. Whoop. Which is a Friday before the 4th of July weekend begins. Ooh, yay. Have you got any special plans this weekend? Not really. Um, probably may go to a local bakery, probably go see some local fireworks. Nothing, nothing too crazy. Yeah, I want to see some fireworks this weekend. Might go hiking. I think we might go hiking. We got a long weekend. Okay, so where were we? We were talking about Andrew Carnegie and Frick laying down the law against their workers trying to union bust them. Right. I think one uh, one notable instance would be the homestead strike. You want to start with that? No, we're going to go a little bit before that, but that is what we're going to talk about. So to specify, there are going to be a few events, key events that we're that we're going to talk about in this episode. Also, we're going to talk about his aspiring writing career. So, oh, wait, he wrote too? Oh yeah, he he wanted he always wanted to be a writer, but don't want to give everything away. The two most negative things that impacted Carnegie's life, one of them was the homestead strike and the other one, you'll have to wait to hear what it's about, but just to say people die. So, it's pretty tragic. A it, murder. Uh, no, no, no. Well. Hmm. Murders? Yeah, no. More like, hmm, probably more considerate of manslaughter. Oh. But, but, I can give you another hint. Okay. And it is the worst single loss of life that was man-made up until 9-11. Wow. That is, oof. Okay, well, I can't wait to hear about that one. Um, but let's, uh, let's start off with the, uh, the preamble to the homestead strike, shall we? And his marriage and so on. So we are talking about in the 1880s, we are, we are in Carnegie's height of building his, his steel works and acquiring Frick Coke company. He was also in the middle of a disagreement about a strike on the coal companies between Frick and himself. Carnegie had a large enough share in the company, in Frick's company, to force him to settle with the workers, which he ended up doing. But the tension between Frick and Carnegie only grew, and I do not believe it ever really resolved itself. And we'll see how that plays out in the future. In 1889, The Gospel of Wealth is published. It is arguing that the wealthy have a moral obligation to serve as stewards for society. This is Carnegie. And by the next year that he wrote this, Carnegie had an annual take-home pay of guess how much? In today's dollars? No, back then. Back then? um, $250,000. $25 million. $25 million. $25 million. Good gravy. That is a lot of money. 
That was also before you had income tax, so that's even better. This was something that Carnegie had always wanted to do. He has always wanted to be a writer. This was a way that he was able to kick off his writing career. Remember, whenever he was a child, he wrote the local newspaper to talk about how one of the libraries closed to working children, but not school children. That was only the beginning. He wrote many pamphlets and letters to the newspapers and editorials, and this was like his first actual publication. He ended up publishing a few other books talking about similar ideological type ideas. And something that I would like to dive into a little bit was his the contrast of Carnegie when it comes to capitalism, not specifically capitalism, but his ideas behind making money and growing the, the business that he had obtained and grew from the ground up, as well as his sympathy towards unions and the average hardworking laborer that he was so proud of coming from. So it seems kind of funny, well, funny is not the right word, ironic that he would be one of these people that's so outspoken for unions and the and the little guy, as one would say, but then when it comes to his own work and his own workers... It's not quite the same story. So it's kind of like rules for thee, not for me. In a way, I wouldn't say he was hard cut with it. I think that he had a very particular way that he saw the world that he would want to carry it. I would say maybe more or less the first image damaging thing that had happened was something that involved the South Fork Dam. So you remember how I said there was a tragic event? Yeah. Property damage after this event equaled $17 million back then, which was roughly $534 million today. Wow. Which would be um, $300 million less than he made a year, by the way, in today's money. Yeah. So I believe the $25 million might have actually been today's money by those numbers, but the date was May 31st, 1889. Early in the morning, and the people of Jonestown were just beginning to wake up 14 miles downriver from the South Fork Dam. Just starting to drink their coffee? Not even that. This was like 4.36 a.m. Oh, man. It's like it's like almost 5 o'clock. They get a telegram. It says, high water causing flood. Evacuate city now. There's a few problems. First problem is, the water... And the reservoir, or the lake, is rising. It rose six inches in an hour. Not only that, it's been raining for several days. And the dam's starting to starting to get full, right? The other problem is, this has been only one of many warnings that the Jonestown people have received throughout the years. Always worried about the dam busting or overspilling. There's only one problem. The dam broke. Like broke, broke? Like broke, broke. Man. So they got a lot of... So they were thinking, it's the boy who cried wolf when it's the actual wolf is coming to town. Oh, it was a wolf. It was a 63-foot tall wave of wolf water. Oh. Yeah. So, to back up this story real quick, there was a group of people, Henry Frick and Andrew Carnegie included, that had... Bought and joined a hunting and fishing club on the South Fork Dam in the local area. 
and the lake was mainly for recreational purposes. They bought it and they paid a membership and they could not get their carriage across the dam. So they lowered it to widen the road. And they lowered the dam. They lowered they, they lowered the dam. And what happened was the lowering of the dam did not make it prone to the water tipping over the dam and causing it to flood. Of course, that was a problem. The bigger problem was whenever they lowered the dam, they harmed the structural integrity of the dam. Oh, so it wasn't even just spilling over the top. It was just they messed it up. They did not properly maintain and shore up the dam, and the city, county that they bought it from, constantly were telling them that you need to fix this. This is not good. The structural engineers were not. The civil engineers were not happy about it. So while we're sitting here, I was looking it up, and apparently, when it broke, the flow rate of the dam was comparable to the average flow rate of the Mississippi River, which is four hundred and twenty thousand cubic feet per second. Can you imagine that coming towards you? I don't want to. And I imagine, no pun intended, the people in Jonestown saw that coming. And it was not a pretty sight. What would you do? Like, you see a jet, like a river coming towards you. You run. You you run. Where? You run until the water catches you. (laughs) Didn't even have their coffee yet. How do you deal with that kind of morning? The so that morning the dam catastrophically failed. This wall of water floods down and cascades down the valley, not slowing down. And we're talking fourteen miles downstream. Fourteen miles downstream. This is not like right at the base of the dam. Yeah. I think there was estimates where some people were saying that all you heard was this loud, like roaring sound before the water appeared. Oh, you mean like a river? Something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. At the end of it, 2,200 people were killed. Over 220 people. That is a lot of people. Women, children. Over 2,200 people were killed and $17 million in damage. And that was in then money, as we stated. And it was the first major disaster relief effort handled by the American Red Cross, which was... Led by Clara Barton. Wow. Yeah, she, well, she, you know, founded the Red Cross or something like that. Right. Yeah, the first president of the American Red Cross. So I apologize there, listeners, for not knowing that beforehand. But yeah, that that is what happened. And this was a very, this was a first major disaster. I believe at this time Carnegie was over in Scotland or in Europe when this had happened. And he quickly resigned his membership to the hunt the club so pretty much what had happened is they they just kind of jerry-rigged the dam so they could just get their carriages across and then they didn't really maintain it or fix it the way they needed to and it cost a substantial amount of loss in life and property damage the other side of that was the fact that they had put fish screens on the outlets on the overflows and the and they were stopped up with debris and stuff from from all the rain and they were trying to clear them off, and they couldn't, so that caused the drainage to even slow anymore. And there was somewhere where I read they had removed some of the drain pipes at the bottom of the dam that were cast iron. They had, like, removed them or filled them, or most of them. 
Wow. So was the South Fork Hunting Club held responsible in any way? Why don't you take a guess? I'm going to say no. What ended up happening was they they went through a lengthy trial. What ended up coming of it was they were able to argue that it was a freak natural disaster of mainly due to unprecedented amounts of rainfall that has all, never really been seen. And they were able to escape without any major things. I do think that they did donate money, obviously, to help with the cleanup and and donation and rebuilding of the city. But that doesn't really change the loss of life. And this was the first sore spot on Carnegie's record in the public eye. It very much affected him in a negative way. And I don't think that Carnegie knew this was going to happen. I don't think he was the primary reason the dam was lowered or the low maintenance or the lack of maintenance that occurred. This deeply affected him in a negative way, which I can only imagine. I did read that the, um, like half the members did contribute to actually helping with the relief efforts and Carney himself actually built a library in the, the new town. As, as if you don't already know, Carnegie libraries are a very popular thing most of them, I think, are still around. There's a lot of them that have been closed and or torn down. That is the first major tragic event in Carnegie's life that did not include the death of a family member, but instead the near annihilation of Jonestown, where it had flattened like two square miles or four square miles of the city. Just flattened, just timber. Very, very uh, tragic not just to mention the Jonestown um, problem in the, you can call it a massacre if you want. Um, one of the other big problems that came from Carnegie was, um, or at least his company, was the um, the strike, the Homestead strike. And this happened in 1892. And this kind of set the stage for a lot of strikes and strike-breaking methods in the future. Where you had a lot of, uh, they call them scabs now, but back in the day you used to call them strike breakers. So with the use of uh, strike breakers and immigrant labor to try to um, fill in the gaps where skilled labor was lacking, or if there were strikes. Um, the During the homestead strike in particular, there was a use of mercenaries, or the Pinkerton Detective Agency, to try to get um, strikers to... Um, go back to work or end the strike in any means necessary. Dive a little bit more into the uh, Pinkerton agents. They were a private mercenary force that came about after the Civil War. Well, maybe even before the Civil War. They were primarily used to defend against robberies of stagecoaches. They were also hired at some point to be the private secret service before we had the secret service of the president. And they were called in to break up, I wouldn't even say to break up strikes, but we need to dive in a little bit deeper into the strikes that occurred during this time, or in general, but primarily around like this really big, like big business, local labor, we're all striking unions. There is a proliferating idea about the striker, especially back then, and that idea was a striker was always right. I would agree with that in terms of maybe salary, hours worked, poor working conditions, you know, all these terrible things. The major ones. 
Exactly. The other side of that is what never gets talked about is the violent outburst that occurred. These were not the peaceful strikes that people would like you to believe where you just have people standing up and they're not backing down and then they get mowed down by mercenaries. That's not exactly what would happen in this case specifically, but just to talk about striking in general, a lot of times vandalism occurred of the factory or the plant that these people worked at because they wanted their jobs. They also would have, as Rob had mentioned, scab labor come in. They were ununionized, un lower skilled workers that could come in and run the furnaces. And as we had mentioned in previous episodes about how the iron workers were way more skilled and, and meticulous in the process of producing pig iron in the steel process, it was more of a timed procedure and you just ran the machinery. Once it was done, it was done. You poured it, whatever. It was not as, not as much skill and experience was necessary to run an, an efficient factory due to labor strikes as I had mentioned, you'd have rogue groups or bands of people. They would damage anything that had logo of the company on it, you know, railroad tracks, cars, trucks. Well, I would say carriages, trucks haven't really been invented yet. Facilities, transportation, anything that really had to do with the company if the company was not conceding to their demands. Partial understanding, I think it should go both ways. If someone is doing something as heinous as you know, demanding you work 12 hours a day, six days a week for less money than what you were making before. I understand. And, and for a lot of these people, you know, that was the difference between being poor and not, you know, having a job. But vandalism and destruction of property is still not justifiable in some in some reason. Um, in most cases, I would say you're right. Vastly, the most cases, you're right. And I'm not taking the side of the strike breakers of the Pinkertons here. I just think that it, you should give a fair shake to the situation. A lot of times it gets portrayed as, you know, good versus bad. And it's like, if you do something that's wrong, it's wrong exclusively. Yeah, yeah two wrongs don't make a right. But if you kind of look back in the, um, like, where this went goes in the future, not to go too far in the future, but this, uh, a few strikes, this one being one of the major ones, kind of, cemented a law in like 1902 i want to take a quick break to thank you for listening to this episode of prestigious minds i hope that you are enjoying it also i would like to ask if you could leave us a five-star review on apple podcast spotify or anywhere you listen and let us know what you think of the show and maybe any future topics or people that you would like us to cover here also, don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at pmindspod, where you'll also get a visual representation, not just the audio, of what we talk about here. Now back to the show. Sorry, it's the uh, National Labor Relations Act of 1935. It had a few provisions, but it was soon repealed in 1947. And part of this was contested. Um, the uh, the bill in nineteen forty seven was actually um, amended again with the um, you know like the contract drivers with Uber and Lyft and stuff like that. So this is from these uh, union efforts or the strike breaker efforts, however you want to look at it. This has been contested all the way up till today. So that's the kind of footprint this has. We had talked about how the Pinkertons were brought in and what they did and who they were. They were guns for hire. 
it was typically from what history has told us a bad idea to bring in Pinkertons where they a lot of times become deputized by the local authorities making them have a little bit more power than they probably should for certain things but they primarily brought these people in to to defend the factory from hostile strikers or and or union laborers non-union laborers that wanted to see their old jobs come back or just the failure of the company regardless you you have a very very high tense situation and a powder keg waiting to go off. Frick was in charge of this primarily, and he was a little bit hard-nosed in how he did things. Carnegie was over vacationing in Europe, as Rob had mentioned. Carnegie, even though he never came out and said it, he pretty much was like, whatever you got to do, Frick, you know, do what you got to do. I don't really want you to bring in people and turn this up a notch, but I trust your judgment, is pretty much what happened. Frick brought in the Pinkertons, and this set off a frenzy with the people, and they were coming up by river and were trying to make landfall, the Pinkertons, and about 300 of them, I think, in total. The strikers set out in front of the factory and like barricaded the entrances and bank of the factory so they couldn't get to it. And as they were trying to come off, you know, they were throwing rocks and stuff. And then at some point, a gunshot went off, which I feel like is ironic because almost every major conflict in history, it's just some random shot was fired and then everyone's like, guns ablazing. Of course, this ensued gunfire. And if you have ever seen um, the History Channel's depiction of this, they kind of skip over the fact that the strikers had actual weapons, guns, and, and whatnot. Now, I'm not saying that they had the high-caliber Henry Repeaton rifle as the Pinkertons had had, which was modern technology. But they had firepower, and the way it got depicted, I think, is a little bit skewed. But that being that, a fire went off or a gun was fired, and both sides beginning began the struggle of firing back and forth, and this went on for a few days until eventually the Pinkertons surrendered and never actually made landfall and got off the boat. When they did, and this also is not mentioned in that history series, when they came off the boat, they surrendered and laid down all their arms, and they were the first several people were severely beaten by the mob. Not to death, but they were severely beaten until finally they, they kind of called in the state militia and and got everyone to disperse and organize and, and, and got it settled. At the end of all this, there was 11 union, non-union strikers that were, had been killed and reports from about three to eight of the Pinkertons were killed. So there's a lot of uh, gray area in this. I wouldn't say that. I mean, a company shouldn't use um, a hired militia or mercenary group, whatever you want to call it, to try to quell um, strikers. Uh, that should have been handled by the local law enforcement, you know, not to not to uh, promote violence or um, vandalism. Yeah, you, you know, you don't want to escalate something with uh, hired firepower. But uh, I think it's pretty important just to say that, you know, when a company comes to your town and they change things, they, they give you all these opportunities and then slowly back things away so you don't have an opportunity. To, you know, if they run other businesses out or, or they change the way business is done in your town and then they start backing off their wages or hours or benefits of any kind, I mean, you could get kind of sore from that. But, I mean, not necessarily they were in the right uh, promoting violence, but I, I can understand the the heartache that would go through, you know, that would, that would the town would feel if things were to change for the worse, especially economically. 
when news made it around to Carnegie about the strike, he was awestruck, and this severely destroyed, or tarnished, I wouldn't say destroyed, it severely tarnished his reputation, because before this, as we mentioned, he was always coming out as, I'm for the worker, I understand, I've been there, I was one of you, and this shined a different light on that situation. So the state militia was called in to quell the situation. There was no... I don't think there was any formal investigation done, or maybe there was. Nothing ever came of it. It was... It was kind of swept under the rug. Like many other of these things that had occurred. Yeah. Um, It's kind of wild, though, do you think that these strikes, like, led to gunfire and violence like this, and this was a... I wouldn't say it was a super common, but it definitely was more common. At least the the bigger, bigger things that we hear, they have happened. Only a few years later, though, it has we had mentioned Carnegie in eighteen ninety seven. A few years later, his first and only child, his daughter Margaret, was born, and at his wife's request. They search for a home in Scotland, and they end up buying a place called Skybow, which was in ruins and did not have a waterfall at the time, but it, they, they did. But they bought, well, it did eventually after they built one. They paid 85,000 pounds, British pounds for it, and then money, and redid the place, kind of built their own little place on there. And now we see after the homestead strike stuff Obviously, was not in good, good standing with Carnegie and the general public and the workers. During the time of the Homestead strike, I think while this was going on, there was actually an attempted assassin, an attempted assassination, by anarchist Alexander Berkman against Henry Frick, and he was shot twice. I think one grazed him and and. One hit him in the left uh, earlobe, penetrating his neck near the base of the skull and lodged in his back. The impact knocked Frick down, and that was when the second shot was fired and it striked him um, in the neck, causing him to bleed extensively. Did he recover very well? He recovered. He ended up making an actual miraculous recovery for the time and didn't die. He ended up living a fairly long life. But this assassination attempt also kind of turned public sentiment away from away from negative feelings towards Frick and Carnegie a little bit because it was kind of like a, wow, I can't believe that happened kind of thing. Um, so you had someone attack him and they're just like, oh, maybe they were, we're not the bad guys. Yeah, and this was almost in this was independent of the strikers as well, but it did not look look good for them. But that, that was pretty much we were starting to go into the phase of Carnegie's life where he is realizing that he's actually getting old, and he was always anti-war. So in eighteen ninety-eight, Carnegie after the Spanish-American War, the Philippines are now a uh, territory of the United States. Carnegie has petitioned and donated and petitioned to give Philippines their independence. The U.S. actually paid Spain $20 million to purchase the islands. And 
Carnegie saw this as imperialist. I'm not too read up on the imperialist ideology and what is or isn't. I feel like if a country owns something, you get in a war with them, and instead of taking it, you pay them for it. I don't think that's very imperialist. That's just my own personal belief. But nonetheless, Carnegie saw it this way, and so he was very much against war to the point where they wouldn't, they actually were trying, so Carnegie and some of his partners in the steelworks had secured government contracts to produce plate steel for armored armor on their ships. They also had an opportunity to produce the barrels, I believe, of their cannons, like their large guns. And he was, I don't think he, I don't think he was happy to do it, but I think it was during a downturn in the economy. Steel was becoming really cheap, and he needed a way to make money. But I think his partners outruled him and or, and or convinced him that it probably wouldn't be a good idea to do that when you're anti-war. So that's that's kind of what came about of that. We're, we're, we're at the time. Carnegie Steel is getting really big at the end of the 1890s. And he begins doing finished products. Before this, he mainly did, you know, structural steel, rails, ingots, selling it to other manufacturers to produce, you know, the actual materials that would be finished goods. And he decides to start producing these finished products and grow more or vertically versus horizontally. And he expands his, his business into production of finished products, which completely, which competed directly with J.P. Morgan's interest. And as we saw with Rockefeller and his truce with Carnegie and Morgan with creation of U.S. Steel, Morgan saw this as an opportunity to, instead of challenging one of the most wealthy people in America in the business that they made their money in, that they should combine their endeavors. And there was actually a man named Charles Schwab that headed up this agreement and conversation for Carnegie Steel. In 1899, Carnegie organized a bunch of smaller steel companies into Carnegie Steel. Carnegie and Frick, their tensions obviously, as we last talked about, were not on good standing. And Frick is asked by Carnegie to resign as chairman of the board, and questions remain about how much Frick, how much the Frick company will charge for Coke. So, Carnegie owns the majority of the price of Coke, but he pretty much has allowed Frick to more or less maintain control over his own company. Coke prices have gone up. Production prices have gone up. In 1900, they have a disagreement about Coke prices, and Carnegie f- tries to force Frick to sell him Coke at a cut-rate price, way cheaper than what they're buying it at, and, and he tries to overtake the interest that Frick has in Carnegie Steel. Frick sues for the market value of his coke, and the case is settled out of court. He kind of gets screwed in this deal. They had a clause where if a partner wanted to leave the agreement, then they would sell or they would sell their shares of the company back to the holders for book value. And book value was, I wouldn't say severely underpriced, but it was like 25% underpriced of market value. Or if this is Carnegie trying to get back at Frick for some of the things that he didn't really like. So he's just like trying to get him out of the business as cheaply as possible. 
He saw Frick as more of a of a loose cannon. He he would write letters to Frick all the time, trying to develop a personal connection. And Frick was very closed off personally. It was almost all business with Frick. And Frick had a lot of tragedy in his life. He had a daughter that was very sickly, and his wife. And he came from a failed family. His father was very much a failure, worse than Carnegie. So one could say you understand Frick's sentiment when it comes to business. That kind of tragedy can affect how anyone does business or have personal relationships. Not to mention business relationships but it just seems like this is kind of going uh it's me it just seems like carnegie's trying to shore up his losses you know like hey we have a bad we have a starting to have a bad name because of maybe some of the decisions you've made let's try to uh, get you out of here this is also the same time that carnegie really dives into the effort of philanthropy as you had mentioned earlier, building libraries, and he also, at, around this time, ins- he created the ins- the Carnegie Institute of Technology. And it was more of a trade school, because he thought it would be more important of people to learn actual skilled labor and, and work their way up through the ranks as his protégés had, which was, Frick had started his own company, but Frick, to some degree, Charles Schwab was another person that ended up running the entire factory. And so he was the one, like I said, that orchestrated the the buyout of um, Carnegie Steel to J.P. Morgan. We will talk about that in the next episode over Carnegie. Right. So, Jeremiah, this has been episode three of the Carnegie Saga. That is correct, and on the next episode, then we will talk about the creation of U.S. Steel, which was the first billion-dollar company, and all of the philanthropic works in the in the fading days of Carnegie. Nice. Well, this has been Prestigious Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. That concludes today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, let us know how we can improve by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at PMindsPod. And go give us a follow over there where we discuss and share photographs, videos, and anything visual related to the podcast. And thank you for listening to Prestigious Minds. <laughs>